All right, so we have the introduction. We're going to do that. Intro. Welcome to Mystery Flight, a journey into the narcissistic neurosis of our inner Neanderthals. My name is Ben. He is such a badass. Uh, And I'm Jesse. And today we're going to be talking about after whiteness. This is sort of your space, right? I mean, we should say Willie James Jennings very clearly up front because we just talked about the book and didn't drop the author. Oh yeah, and he's kind of an OG. He's a big deal. Such a badass. Yeah, he would, yeah. You gotta read this book. Um, how does Willie define whiteness? Do you think? Oh, that's a huge question because he dances through whiteness. I think he doesn't define whiteness so much as show you what it feels like, what it looks like within the context of um, education, theological education, right? So for him, he works specifically in theological education, but he suggests that his point, you know, is broadly more applicable to Western education as a whole Mm. because the Western Educational Project really comes out of the earlier, you know, Christian-formed institutions uh, in the early, you know, American era in particular. So, yeah, I mean, so he kind of walks you through what this, what this whiteness looks like. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's like a, you were saying earlier, like just the, the genre of this book is such an interesting matchup, right? Like, yeah. So this is such a hard book to read and such a wonderful book to read at the same time. Mm. So he dances between. I feel like we're saying dancing a lot. That's just because the skill of his writing. But um, yeah, we need the the dinger. Um, the the writing dances between like a straight up essay, like academic essay, um, or like an argumentative essay, where he's making a point, bringing evidence to support his evidence to, to support his point. Uh, poetry, mm. lots of poetry, and some really nice connective theming in in the way that he uses the poetry intentionally throughout the piece. Um, and then memoir sections that yeah. are, um, you know, mixed so that names are protected and all that kind of business. Um, but memoir experiences, uh, mm. that he's had as an educator and an administrator, um, in a theological, uh, seminary. Mm. I think. Yeah. And you sort of end up feeling like you're inside his head a bit, right? Because he talks about fragments and mm-hmm. it's, it's a book made up of fragments and, um, and while they're not always like they're fragments, but they're, there's some stunningly powerful through lines that emerge as you read it that just really, I mean, just the way he writes overall, he's just a devastating writer. He is like, ding, the, 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 the <laughs> definition of pithy 
Should where... we hold on? I'm going to just interrupt you because we yeah. get, we've done this ding thing oh, twice. Sorry, yeah. um, this stems from uh, listening back mm. to the first episode we did. Uh, Love your sister as <laughs> yourself, and uh, I just kind of jumped on Ben for the frequency with which he used the word devastating. <laughs> um, and you know, I want to just I wanted to bring this up for not just to poke fun of Ben, <laughs> but to really center that the truth of that reaction in him. Yeah. Right? So that's a that's a, a rhetorical um, response. It's a it's like a triggered response. And it's because we two white guys are walking through, you know, some really deep stuff for which, you know, broadly speaking, we are responsible, you mm-hmm. know, in, in the expression of um, white male patriarchy in American culture, mm. you know, both of it relates to gender. And then today as we're talking race, so devastating, I mean, it's just, you know, if you are willing to open your heart and your eyes and yeah. your mind to, to walking through this stuff and you hear the, the testimony and the witness of the oppressed rather than us who are benefactors of a system that was designed for us, mm. you know, it's devastating. It's devastating. Yeah. We've got something at stake here. And I think it's so important for us to read it non-defensively. And he just has a way, like, even as he's devastating, that um, he, he, he has a way of doing it with a smile that's not trying, like, out to kill or wound, but... Uh, there's Like, he's, he's very skilled with his words, so he's like a surgeon with a scalpel, right? Very precise cuts. And he just... Like he, there are twenty. Like the the book I just checked, the book's one hundred and fifty-seven pages long. Really short book, but it felt but like it's ages of reading. Yeah, like each paragraph could be a book, and yeah. I I don't feel like I'm saying a word of exaggeration when I say that. No, like, I feel like I've read books that I've got. Like I've got more out of his paragraphs than I have out of like three hundred page books before. Like seriously, yeah, he's really remarkable. So I don't know, maybe. Um, why don't we throw out a few different poems to center our conversation, maybe, to give people a feel? Okay, well, so first, before think? we do that, right, yeah. so you asked about the whiteness. Yeah. So I want to just read a, a brief section where he kind of personifies the what he calls like the white, self-sufficient, masculinist uh, impulse, thread, mm. underpinnings that makes up all of this Western theological education. That's awesome. And it, as you get the page, uh-huh. I just realized a good analogy for this book. Yeah. It's a bit like, um, this book is like a Kendrick Lamar album, right? Particularly... Badass. It's badass. It's very on point, very skillfully delivered, in sometimes in different voices. But there's a mashup of genres, right? Where you listen to, is it To Pimp a Butterfly? Where you have like this jazziness, you have this rap... You have these spoken word portions and they're just like, sometimes it's bits of recordings or songs or a jazz piece just all brought together that somehow is profoundly cohesive and carries these things through in movements. Mm-hmm. And it's just all the more powerful for, for being kind of non-linear yeah. because it's talking about stuff that's really hard to put your finger on. And so he ends up kind of scooping up a whole mini ecosystem from this pond of white supremacy mm-hmm. to capture yeah. You know, so much. Sorry, Jesse, read your poem. No, 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 you're good. It's, it's not a poem, actually. It's just it's one oh. of the uh, memoir things, although I, I don't think this is so much memoir as him just trying to give, like I said, a, a physical expression to this. But So this is actually the very beginning of the second chapter, Designs. 
And the very first, it, it just begins with simply, I was inside it. Mm. And then he starts this uh, anecdote. It happened at the beginning of one semester, well into my years as an academic dean. I was in my office one morning, praying at my desk in hope, fear, and excitement at the start of student orientation for the new academic year. Today would be my turn to introduce the curriculum, the faculty, the degree programs, and the strategies for learning here. My turn to speak of the beating heart of theological education. 6.30 a.m., praying quietly, carefully, and then a knock at my door. Not the main door that opens from my assistant's office, but the private door from the hallway that leads directly into my office. I ignored the knock. Must be wrong door, I thought. But it came again with authority and consistency. I got to the door quickly, opened it, and there stood a man I had never seen before. But I knew exactly who he was. I had felt his presence before. He smiled, stepped into my office, walking past me. He sat at my desk. White flowing hair, perfectly manicured, full white beard. He wore a gray suit with bright silver buttons, thick silver belt, beautiful ruby blood red cuff, uh, ruby blood red cufflinks on his sleeves. He leaned back in my chair. Tell me about that dream, Willie, he said, speaking with the full sound of a southern gentleman, each word carrying a plantation cadence. As I prayed, I saw the hand of God reaching down from heaven toward the divinity school, I said. Go on, he replied. Then I saw another hand emerge from this building where we are right now. That hand grabbed the hand of God by the index finger. Then I saw that hand bend back God's finger until it broke. And then I woke up. The man then started laughing, a knowing laugh. He looked me straight in the eyes and said, this is my school. And so wow. I think that's re- right. So the image that he's, he's giving, right, is the, the white southern plantation owner. Mm. The description of it, right, in our popular imaginations. Um, Which is intentionally a caricature. Yeah. But like certainly. as Flattery O'Connor says, right, sometimes you have to draw in caricatures or write in caricatures to emphasize sort of the, to bring to bear some of the like ludicrous nature of our reality. Well, I mean, but he also goes through... To make it seeable. Yeah, well, he also goes through and shows how the formation of education in these spaces, whether theological or or Western education more broadly, were shaped through the colonialist uh, impulse, through the slave plantation, um, and the relationship between... Uh, master and slave, and the need to educate the son, right, to to, to become the white self-sufficient man, mm. to take uh, the place of the plantation father and ruling yeah. over these subjects, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, there's very certainly a, a, an intentionality to it, but mm. and, he, and he runs through it, you know, throughout the text, this, this figure, this ghost... Yeah. Like phantom just keeps reappearing. Well, no, these asserting like echoes, right? Ownership, yeah. yeah. Like later on in the book, he he is uh, recalls an anecdote of being taken to lunch by a senior colleague when he's just new on a faculty, and he's starting to find his voice. And this faculty member indirectly and very gently and kind of. Uh, sort of skillfully in some ways tries to put Willie back in his place and Willie finds himself confronting this guy and we have this kind of image of this kind of white self-sufficient man right kind of emerging again as mm-hmm. and he, he, he mentions this is from page 126 we have to recall at this moment what we know of the self-sufficient man 
He wields his power responsibly, never apologizing for fully acting in his abilities. What is also true of the self-sufficient man is that he identifies the sheer power of ability in others and never apologizes for identifying it. With this identification comes clarity about human beings and the way the world should be. Right, that, that through appeals to meritocracy, skillful appeals to ability, there is a bigger image being pointed to, which is one of his big underlying points that just echoes throughout, right, that uh, you know, white supremacy isn't you know, a man dressed up in a Ku Klux Klan outfit. It is, it is an image of becoming, right? Just as Jesus is the image of the invisible God that we as Christians are called to become like, there are these other images that we are given. Um, and in this, Willie is pushing back and questioning our desire and questioning what we're being formed into uh, because he sees people being formed into an alienation where they have to be self-sufficient and alone so that they can perform what it means to be self-sufficient mm-hmm. and uh, with a masculine sense of power. And there's something really profound and incisive about that. Yeah. You know, it's, this is a random aside, but I wonder, you know... Um, this just just crosses my mind. I wonder how uh, he would feel about us referring to him regularly in this podcast as Willie, as opposed to Professor, or Dr. as opposed Jennings to Doctor. Right? You know. Damn. So it's interesting because Damn. on the one hand, those titles mm-hmm. reify the white institutional mm-hmm. model that he's writing against here. Right, and so that's that's it represents him reifying that kind of authoritarian structure of, mm. of community in the, in the academy. On the other hand, right, the man earned yeah. these titles, mm-hmm. right? And he earned that, that level of respect. We could be, we could so be like Southern is calling a black man boy, you know, even though he may be many years our senior. Yeah, I yeah. don't know if it's that... Well, sorry, that has much a different of a history to it. Absolutely. But, yeah. but I think... Um, but yeah, you know, I, I think that's just interesting. I mean, I think it's it's quite honestly for listeners, I think it's out of fondness. Ben and I have been yeah. talking about this book for for weeks, um, and we just we love everything about the writing uh, and and this project, and so we've just been you know lovingly referring to him as Willie uh, yeah. throughout the week. So. Yeah, it's just forgive us, Willie. Every every week we have to have an aside about how we're butchering someone's name. I think. So. Yeah, well, you know that's that's what we do as privileged <laughs> white guys. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Notice we don't butcher Ben or Jesse. Because <laughs> I sometimes call you Yessie yeah. on purpose, but yeah. and I sometimes call you your Eminence. So well, that's just appropriate. But, um, yeah, I, you, I, I think that um, there was something else I was gonna bring up based on what you had just said prior to my thought about the, of the, the titles and whatnot. Yeah. But, um, I can keep going if you want. Yeah. Go keep keep going. Maybe it'll resurface. So so like, as we've said, he has these poems throughout and here's an image of, um, he's got two images of teachers, right? If he's writing a lot about education and becoming, then the teacher is a big character. And, uh, this is how he narrates, the different voices that teachers can have that he can't have almost because 
of who uh, he is. But he never paints himself as a victim, so it's not like he's saying, I wish I could have the white man voice. Like He's pushing back on the very notion. I think every white man in academia wishes they could have this voice. Oh, yeah. I Good do. Lord. <laughs> Goodness me. So anyway, um, it's called The Phenomenological Teacher. Being never safe, I always envied the phenomenological teacher. They could always stay in the air above history, suspended between knowledge and belief. They could take peoples, ideas, hopes, dreams, God, Jesus, the Spirit, Islam, the Buddha, Muhammad, the Quran, the Bible, spiritualists, Pentecostals, Satanists, and present them all in the third person, singular or plural. Being always skin-dark bound and never the universal, I could not get away with that, cord as I was in flesh and spirit. Phenomenologicals disappear in teaching the they, of what, the whiteness forming voice, from stage left aiming for stage right, to be viewed by students as knowledge itself for the taking, or leaving smooth and clean, and in pieces like a plate filled with different flavored options, like a journalist in alluring drag, handing them, handling them the same by not handling them. I, on the other hand, was, one, was only one option, take it or leave it. And that's so true to my academic experience, even back in the UK, right? You're t- taught to write in a certain voice. You're taught to go for a certain, like, um, write indifferently almost, except for your very carefully carved out critiques that you deploy at very specific places because you're trying to um, manifest and demonstrate a degree of mastery over your subject. You're trying to possess the subject fully and, and universally and objectively and you're trying to control right your narrative and those those three things possession mastery and control are the three demonic virtues that he's pushing back of against is kind of the demonic virtues of of whiteness um that i think is a really incisive way of kind of collecting together some of this broken image of white supremacy that he's kind of trying to dig up at the root yeah i think um it's, it's really interesting. There certainly is, right? So for my grad grad school, grad school was when I figured that out. Mm. I mean, it's to a degree, right, in college for your undergrad, you write papers and things like that. And you have a sense of like this, this if you have a good teacher, you have a sense of this is the format that I'm looking for. Or, you know, if you've had some writing classes, you get a sense of kind of how to structure a sentence, you know, mm. um, but the voice, right, is not something that you pick up. I don't, I, don't, I don't think, I mean, there's some probably astute, hardworking undergrads that pick it up earlier. But in, in, in master, I mean, in, in graduate school, that's exactly where it's inculcated. It's like, so mm. there is a voice with which you speak uh, in academic discourse and writing, right? And there's a formula. I mean, and so... Um, and it's 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 unfortunate too, in a sense, right? So, pulling the curtain back so you can see a little bit, you know, during uh, PhD, mm. you have a, a segment of that education where it's comprehensive exams, and that's where you have four different, you know, at least for my 
history PhD, four different committee members who say, here's a big pile of books, read through all of them. And after a certain amount of time, I'm going to give you a four hour test on your comprehensive knowledge of that subject. Right. So it's basically, here is a subject for you to master in these books. Um, The thing of it is, right, is that history as a discipline is like much like I would guess other disciplines are. It's very formulaic. Mm. Right. So you can you can after a while, the grad student just out of sheer exhaustion and (laughs) trying to avoid the narcissistic neurosis that education breeds. Right. Ding. Ding. Will um, will will pick up on that. Right. And say, all right. So I need to read the introduction and Mm. then I need to read the first and last paragraph of select chapters. um, Make sure I understand what's the argument. Where's the evidence for the argument? Right, and so you can pick it apart. It's no longer a cohesive yeah, intellectual yeah. whole that you ingest mm-hmm. in the way that we've been ingesting. Yeah, you could because you can't do that, do that no, with no. with this book. Oh uh, my goodness! Right, um, and so it's interesting, right? So there is that, mm. right, to the very you know, yeah, formulaic core of the way that the books are structured. Absolutely, um, there you know, and there are like talented. Uh, and sometimes more advanced scholars that get away with breaking out of that mold. Yeah. And that's obviously what he's doing here. Mm-hmm. Right? He's, he's definitely flexing his academic capital here. <laughs> yeah. um, because there's no way a junior faculty member writes this book. No, you couldn't. Particularly an African-American an junior yeah. faculty member. Yeah. yeah, Right. I mean, I, I would say that um, my experience with some uh, contemporary African-American scholars that I've known there's um there is there's some change right there's some definitely uh um a cohesion in a in a in finding uh what is the the particular voice of african american mm. history mm. right it's currently right part of american history but there's a distinctive to african american history that i think is starting to get fleshed out and some of that is in the way that it's presented so for example, uh, in the class that I'm teaching at the community college this year, African-American history, 150, right, whatever, um, one of my companion books is called 400 Souls, and it's a collaboration effort that's edited by Ibram X. Kendi and Dr. Keishan Blaine, and they're mm-hmm. both you know, absolute rock stars at the moment. But these are tiny mm-hmm. little three- to five-page vignettes by different writers of different disciplines yeah. focusing on very specific people, events, or themes throughout African-American history from 1619 when the first documented African slaves landed at Jamestown into the present. And so mm. it's it's the most powerful thing ever. Like I have a standard African-American history textbook that my students are also reading, but it's just like wow. they feel like that's, you know, reading washing machine instructions compared <laughs> to this other text where it's just like these are real... Yeah. Where these authors use their voice, they bring their mm. experience into the way that they're uh, shaping these narratives, right? And some of them bring present moments, you know, to to light, uh, you know, through this past experience. And some of them use their own personal histories to kind of flesh out mm. how some of these things. And so it's a really different and fresh, and I would say, living, yeah, um, yeah, transfer of knowledge, yeah. Because you know. we are all subjects, right? Like, and to have subjectivity of some kind is not something to avoid. Like Willie, just—he's never been. I think part of the gift of Willie's approach here is he's never been allowed to, as a as a black professor, 
Dr. Jennings, has not been allowed to get outside of his black subjectivity. But in, but mm. in the way that he then embodies it, right? He says in that poem, he always has to be what flesh and spirit. He often talks about soil and, and, and flora and fauna and place in relationship to the living things that can grow there. Right. And, and, and as he does so, right, it's like he's pushing back on the way that we um, just try and like impose carte blanche this vision of whiteness as if it's like universal and not particular and not subjective, but just universally true such that all of our subjectivities should be bent into its form, like that we should become uh there's an assimilation Im- Im- project. Exactly. Yeah. That's a great word for it. Yeah. yeah. Which is, is, is something that underlines the whole colonial vision of the world, you know? Absolutely. Which that is, is the colonial vision of the world, right? Yeah. It's either assimilate or displace and replace. Exterminate. Yeah. That's, yeah, I said it the, the nice white Caucasian way to say it. Displace oh, and replace. Yeah. That's, that's I, uh, American I went, I went, Indian policy for the uninitiated. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we're going to displace you and then replace you. Yeah, and then well, we're going to just keep on going until... Sorry, I went straight Dalek, which is probably a pretty apt analogy there. Um, but yeah. I mean, what did you think of his three demonic virtues? Because I thought that was a really interesting framing. Right, to start, to not just say, you know... Whiteness is a subjectivity, but just start to to name the the different um, kind of pitches over which the tent is hung. If that makes sense, yeah. To give it shape. Name and three form. of them again for me. So it's possession, control, yeah. and mastery, and yeah. then the image of like you know the the slave owner's son, right? Where um, the whole of the the plantation is supposed to bend to the slave owner's will. Yeah. And his wife is supposed to enforce his will, and the slaves are supposed to be subjects of his will, and the uh, the son is supposed to grow up to carry forward his project, right? That's that's what an institution is. It's something that's built over time in the same direction. And, uh, and so kind of a white supremacist vision of education is one that is supposed to raise up replacement slave owners uh, in... At this point, obviously, in the metaphorical sense, but still, who can who can take his place by exhibiting possession, mastery, and control? Yeah. Well, and I think so. I'm I'm riffing off of this a little bit. This doesn't come directly from Willie, mm. but it right. So the plantation order rep- represents an economic function. Yeah. 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 Right. And so I think that it's really important to. To, to really think about what's being so so part of the mm. education process is about replacing the the master with a new master that can yeah. right. I mean, you had talked about earlier this notion of identifying people's strengths and that kind of a thing, right? Which is a great skill set for a master is looking for somebody yeah. who's going to be working in the field, somebody who's going to be working in this, right? So identifying skills is is perfectly great, right? Because then that's mm. that leads to efficiency in production. Yeah, exactly. And there is a part of the educational process that comes from this that I think is tied to to this 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 impulse that that mm. Willie's talking about of, of colonialist and, and and slave plantation, you know, created education where you're either creating the master who's identifying the the talent or or the cogs, or you're creating the cogs who are yeah. taught, yeah. you know, how to pull the lever to keep the machine going. Right. Mm. Um, 
very much that's that's one of the great laments that we have of education right is it's yeah. just this cookie cutter education that's supposed to be applicable to everybody and mm-hmm. you know i tell my kids i'm like the point of school is so that you understand how the world works and the system on which it's based mm-hmm. right now you know what's expected of you you know what the rules are when you get out of high school right yeah then you can start making decisions say all right this is the way the world is set up this is what they expect of me Right, mm-hmm. as someone living in this space and time, uh, and and so that's really how you get right. And it, yeah, that awareness I think is really important, and I, I would love for other people to pick up on that. Like, there is a, just a preparing you for fitting into the machine that has mm. been created for the benefit of others from long ago. I mean, there's another yeah. book called An Economic Interpretation of the uh, Constitution by Charles hmm. Beard, which kind of lays out this notion that America. Yeah for all of the wonderful ideals and things like that, that we say that it was built for and on that a lot of it was just a big economic project, which conveniently was, was spearheaded by slave owners in Virginia, you know? So there's, there is that aspect and I don't want to like totally sidetrack it, but I I just found that connection Mm -hmm. really interesting. But there's a lot of connections like that. And I think that's the power of how he weaves it is he, he weaves it in such a way that like, connects all of these things without trying to uh like create a pathology of them almost you know like kill it and lay out all the like this is how it works in the abstract but like by by connecting it to lives and to people he makes all those connections in a really real way and sort of it feels incidental at times but i think very deliberate um and then at the same time as he does it that way because he's not doing like a systematized thing some like abstract vision of the world as it should be or shouldn't be or whatever he's pushing back on the way in which like the impulse we're talking about when it comes to economics it tries to turn everything and everyone into private property right that's the essence of slavery right control it's ownership yeah control possession and mastery right yeah sorry yeah possession not ownership oh you're fine no i mean um and, and the way in which it turns people into private property is a disgusting and twisted thing. But we still do that in some ways. And we need to be able to see the way in which that, like, viewing the world through the lens of private property. Like some of his other projects have to do with um, doctrine of creation. He says we don't have a doctrine of creation in the Western church. We just view the world as, as resource. And that's not the vision of the world that we get from the Bible. Like it's a very, the scriptures gives a very different vision of creation as, as gift from God, as thing to be stewarded and farmed mm. and cultivated and loved and cared for, um, as a site for joy and delight and flourishing, not as a site for exploitation, e- exploitation. for personal gain. Yeah. Where we kind of carve it up. I mean, it's not even like exploitation for the good of society. No, it's not like even a greater good argument. No, it's for like short-term consumer. Yeah, Yeah. and there's and there's there's a perversion in that that is a through line through all this stuff. There's deep connections, and it's a whole ecosystem of. It's a whole plantation system of brokenness that has worked. Right, we've got to a a point with it, but where we've got to understand. Okay, it works together too well. And we got to figure out, okay, how are we going to live radically differently? And I think he gives us a beautiful vision of that. So I think a yeah. lot of what he's doing in this book, he talks about desire a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I think he's trying to do is like, you know, we all long for the products of that machine. 
you know, we long for the vision of life it gives us. Like I, I long for control, right? I long to possess everything I want. I long to, to master things, you know, to get my 10,000 10, hours in it, something so I have it nailed as a skill or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the vision of flourishing, right, he has for us is quite different. And a lot of the language he uses around God, um, I think these are really interesting moves. And I want some of your reflection on this too, because I know you have some analogous ones perhaps. But um, like, whereas so often uh, racial conversations have to do, like they speak in the register of freedom and oppression, and that's the dialectic. Mm-hmm. I feel like Willie presses beyond that and is asking the question, you know, free towards what? Like, oppressed towards what ends? What vision of life is it moving towards? You know, and this is, this is what white supremacy presents. It's not, it's not merely like a, you know, I want to do bad things to you thing. Not at all. It's the goods that it offers us and the desire for those goods that's the problem. Well, you know, to, to, to be self-sufficient and to yeah. be in control. And so he offers a different vision of God. Well, it's really ir- ironic that the for. self-sufficiency is entirely dependent on the subjugation of others. Yeah. Right. I mean, and I think that's a really, really important thing. And I think it's a if you look at Jeff yeah. Bezos, mm-hmm. Jeff Bezos is self-sufficient because of the subjugation of, and subjugation, I'm using right. But yeah. I mean, the labor of hundreds of thousands of Amazon employees who, as we've heard yeah. throughout their history, haven't always felt like that they've been treated well. Yeah. Um, but many of whom who have to be on benefits at the same time that they're working full-time mm-hmm. hours yeah. just because they're not fully paid. You know? Yeah, but there's that that element that I think. And, I, you know, I've, it's interesting because I talk to my students of African-American history and we often keep finding ourselves coming back to economics. Hmm. And it's not because I'm a card-carrying socialist or I'm trying to make them. Yeah. Um, I think that the African-American experience, and there's a broader application to this as well, but the African-American experience in particular is one that is inextricably linked to the engine of American economy Mm. um, at every level. And I think that, you know, these different forms of abuse and exploitation is usually always about, right? Race is about subjugation in the name of personal gain, like we have said before, Mm. or profit. Gain for some, Right? So, So basic economics... Right. Nobody. Dis- I've asked this question in every class I've ever taught, and not one person has ever disagreed with me. But would you say that it's fair to say that the basic premise of capitalism is to maximize your profits and minimize your losses? Yeah. And that's totally yeah. innocuous on the face of it, mm-hmm. until you think deeply and you say, "All right, well, what represents the biggest losses? Almost always mm-hmm. and forever, it's your labor costs." Mm-hmm. Right. And so the system is designed to exploit because that's how you generate more profit. And to externalize your costs. And when you bring over Africans at the start, right, and then you create a subclass of laborers um, that are controlled out of fear and oppression and violence, right, Um, 
and you do that for hundreds of years, the psyche, very psyche of those people mm. break, right? And so then we all of a sudden, Emancipation Proclamation, you're free. And you had mentioned, free for what? Free yeah. to do what, right? So I'm legally, according to the United States of America, I am a free citizen. Mm-hmm. But I have no land. I have no skills other than, you know, in one example, picking cotton. Mm-hmm. So what am I going to do, right? Mm-hmm. And in some cases, well, all right, well, we'll migrate north and see if we can find something there. Mm-hmm. But the same processes of white-dominated society play themselves out, as you yeah. see, like, during World War II when that migration happens. You know, when the soldiers come back from World War II, like, all those African-Americans that are hired for jobs are fired so that they can get jobs for the white people. Mm-hmm. You know, in times of economic uh, duress, the African-Americans are first to be laid off. Yeah. Right? And they're the last to be hired. Mm. You know? And so that thread is just a constant in Definitely. American history of that interplay between racial identity and economics. And I think that mm-hmm. that's towards the end of his life that's MLK started moving into that um, mm-hmm. with the way that he was framing silver. And some people yeah. suggest that that's why ultimately he was deemed too dangerous at that point in, in the assassination app or whatever, but uh, we're veering off topic yeah, a bit. But I think mm-hmm. this question of whiteness as an inherent part of our society, it's not just about we yeah. don't like the way you look. And yeah. I think that's fairly obvious at this mm-hmm. point, but I think we don't go on and say, well, then what is it about? Mm-hmm. Right? We know that it's not black and white skin. Mm-hmm. People who actually, you know, we think about it. I mean, there's some who probably still but brown and peach, <laughs> whatever, right? right? Yeah. yeah, but uh, yeah, but we don't then ask the question. Then okay, then what is it? Yeah, yeah. If that's not what it is, what, what what's mm-hmm. causing this perpetual cycle mm-hmm. of? Because it's of not this. that we want the division or even the name calling, like that anyone wants that, but we all like and need. We think we do the order that it brings, right, to live in a racialized world. Mm-hmm. Like, we need, like, the fundamental problem is the way that that we need racialization. It, it, it is ingrained so that we can't help but see it. It's just our gaze when we look out. It's obvious to us. Mm-hmm. It's not even like a, a question. It's just like, that's just the way things are. It doesn't get examined. It doesn't get questioned. Yeah, It's a vision of life that is just assumed as if an alien landed on the planet, they would see that way too. That's what we imagine. Well, again, and then bringing it back, right, this all goes back to formation. Yeah, And it's exactly. like, what are we intently forming, right? And so in one case, what we're describing here is you're forming people, oh my gosh, right, who are just addicted to their cell phones and consuming and mindlessly just buying and consuming. Mm. And so there is there is no capacity for critical thinking about where am I and what's mm-hmm. going on in this world, right? I'm too busy with consuming yeah. this right and so we're forming but, consu- we, we worked very hard in the 20th century yeah to form addicted consumers definitely and uh, go ahead no i'm just like because i think G- willie well dr jennings is trying to get underneath this mm-hmm. and like what do you think jeff bezos's or bezos's vision of the good life is do you know because he clearly has a very strong sense of it being a man who you know wants to conquer commerce you know take the initiative on you know space travel into the you know outer reaches of the planet he's like um paying huge sums of money to 
to fund anti-aging research so he can discover how you can never die. There's a very strong, like he, he fits the Bond villain mold, which is a caricature. Yeah, I was going to say, or don't look up. The guy from yeah, Don't Look yeah, Up, yeah. for sure. You know, well, yeah, that's yeah. very on the nose, right? But um, like a caricature of someone pursuing an otherwise hidden vision of the good life mm-hmm. that we actually have to stop from our rat races and ask ourselves, you know, is, is this vision of the good life actually good? Right. And if it's the thing that orders our whole existence, uh, you know, so that we're working... 40 hours a week so that we can consume certain things and be in certain places and hopefully get our retirement that's the you know that's yeah. the the carrot that's dangled you know may, maybe there's something so much more beautiful to the vision of of what it means to be created in god's image that 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 just resists and invites us into something so much more beautiful yeah um um, I want to just pick up something from this. Um, so I find this quote that I'm going to read a very common thread and mm. applicable to the last podcast episode we did. Um, but just more broadly speaking to, I think, some of the you know, conceptual and intellectual journeying that we've, we're just doing more broadly these days. Mm. But um, even in places and settings and people involved in theological education far removed from the history of the slaveholding United States are implicated in this scene, right? So the scene he's talking about is a, a picture of a church service on a plantation mm. and there's a black preacher, but there's the very just, you know, just like um, startling image of the slave owner just sitting in the crowd, staring blankly out mm-hmm. in the crowd, not even paying attention to the preacher, just, his presence of I'm in control here. Mm. And then also his son, which we had talked about the, the passing the legacy on. And that's what education is to the son in, in this. But so that's the wasn't scene. This imaging uncovered at Wheaton as well, just to yeah. bring, bring it home for you. Yeah. Right. At Wheaton college, right. Is where he found it, which is uh, one of my alma maters. I guess, can you call it an alma mater if you didn't actually get your degree there? I spent some time and spent some money. Definitely <laughs> spent some money. Um, so inhabiting, uh, they're implicated in this scene, right? This this scene, uh, yet inhabiting a building formed with this same enslaving design. So this is the building that's education, theological education is is um, inhabiting an ecclesial reality inside a white patriarchal domesticity, shaped by an overwhelming white masculinist presence that always aims to build a national and global future that we should all inhabit. So that's the assimilation, that's the the dominance, mm. right? The supremacy, and so when we look at this, right, it, it, this is the formation. Well, read the, this read is the next the, paragraph. I think that will. Okay. Yeah. So sorry, ne- just, next paragraph: the slave legacy of Western education, especially, especially theological education, is lodged deeply in our educational imaginations. It set our work of formation inside a pedagogy of the plantation. Plantations throughout the colonial world were always about more than just cultivating crops and preparing goods and services to be exported and imported through the known world. Plantations were also about cultivating leadership and establishing a social order necessary for promoting commerce and civilization. Slavery taught us how to build. Um, Right, and this is in the chapter on buildings. But Mm. I think that that's... That's that's really interesting, and I don't think it's a really hard stretch 
to wrap your mind around now that that this has been uncovered, Mm -hmm. right? And I think uh, thoroughly, I think Willie does a fantastic job of working through this and just thoroughly laying bare the reality of this formation as it has existed. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if that's accurate, which resonates with my experience in Mm -hmm. higher education uh, in graduate school, it resonates with how I've, you know, conversations I've had with other um, colleagues. Mm. What does that say about us? What are we mm. allowing ourselves to be formed into? Yeah. What's the purpose of our formation and what, it, what does it bring? Yeah. And that to me is like the, the resonating question with me, you know, cause um, as you read it, like I was surprised by the different, you know, different rocks you would turn over and to see what was underneath them in a few places, mm-hmm. like when it comes to the way he uncovers this stuff. It doesn't feel like, even though he talks a lot about slaveholding and different things, he, he's not writing from some place of black grievance, you know, where if only, you know, black professors would get promoted more, then everything would be better. Like, he, he's writing from... Uh, you read him almost... Like, I read him more as like a Moses... Who, you know... Sorry, Finn is distracted yeah, with his little growls. I know. Here. The background noises on this part are going to be amazing. But um, it's, it's like a Moses who, like, is longing for a people to be liberated yes. into a vision of flourishing that's yeah. not dominated by Egypt's scarcity and her slaveholding and her desire to build empire, right? Yeah. But is like a liberation into God's desire for them to be a people captured by his desire right. and his longing and his freedom. And you know? I think I think the the process of building that he's talking about a formation is one geared towards um, community. Yes. Belonging. Yes. Um, because that's how he sees God and God's intent for the world, right? Yes. And so that's how he sees the system was set up to run that way, mm-hmm. right? The way he talks about the education system is one that's distorted, mm. right? That, that it's a distorted formation. Mm. But if we look at, right, the the intended formation, it should be about an education system that's about cultivating belonging and togetherness and communion. And, and to do that, you've got to be able to be real and open to sharing the lived experience of somebody else and yeah. not just taking them and their lived experience and then trying to assimilate that into your understanding of what's proper or what's Mm. necessary, right. Or good, you know? Yeah. 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 I think that is just massive. Like this is this, this area of belonging and desire is where I really see some connections to his like awesome commentary on the book of acts that he wrote. Um, and I just have a quote from the Book of Acts commentary that I think ties him really strongly with what you're saying because it, yeah, it's a cool. vision he sees in the scriptures. So it says this, The heart of Israel's God is laid bare and presented to all flesh through the giving of the Spirit. Now is revealed the divine fantasy of a creation turned in love and embraced by its creator. The language of divine fantasy, by the way. He's not talking about the will of God as, as if it's some stoic abstract bleached thing right it's god's fantasy like god has deep longings for this 
This divine fantasy for people is what God brings to the disciples who follow the Son, who has made concrete God in, God's intentions. God intends to join. God has offered God's body to be taken in, eaten, chewed, and swallowed. Desi- divine desire is of the earth, of flesh and blood, body, and dry... Uh, no, sorry, I may have got a little typo in here. Of hunger and passion in Eros. The Spirit announces God's seeking of pleasure in the joining. This is what the Spirit seeks to impart to the disciples, a new fantasy desperately needed by the world. I feel like this book is in that vein. The prevailing fantasy of people is to have power over others, to claim the power of self-determination, and to make a world bow to its will. This is the fantasy of nations and clans, peoples and corporations. But the Spirit offers us God's own fantasy of desire for people, of joining and life together, and of shared stories bound to a new destiny in God. This desire for people is not the desire for their utility, but for their glory, to draw them into the divine pleasure and joy at the sight of the creation in communion and formed in hope. The disciples are to make evident divine desire to reveal it as this, to be the central, the central gift of the spirit. And that to me is just like mm-hmm. fireworks going off in your mind where you see like what, what he's trying to do in his whole project is to give us an imagination for God's desire for people in the church, you know, and people like, you know, Christians for a long time have talked in terms of racial reconciliation where, um, Stanley Harris talks about racial reconciliation with this great line, like, you know, what's, what's a little slavery between old friends? You know, that's sort of the approach we take mm-hmm. where we try and minimize what's gone on. Mm-hmm. But for Willie, it's not like, how do we get over something? But like, how do we get into something? Which is this vision of the kingdom of God, which is of, of like, it's not where, um, you know, we just move on from these l- legacy issues as if we just should get over some of these um deeply wounding things but actually he's he's he sees how um slavery isn't just an event but a virus that needs to be cured and we need a different vision of humanity that you know we need we need to recover from the sickness into a new vision of humanity that is more in line with uh, god's desire for his creation and for that, he does a stunning job. And this is just him talking about theological education. I mean, <laughs> it's quite, you know, if I could write just about theological education and say as much as this, I mean, it's a stunning, it's a stunning achievement. There's a great know. interview with him on this book on homebrewed theology, which is another great podcast. We may or may not have mentioned. Um, but I would say just as a shout out, it's worth um, looking up just to for the Willie uh, James Jennings interview because it's really... I thought it was really good. Um, but you're right. I mean, he, he really doesn't get into the nooks and crannies of his of his book at all in, in the interview, which is part of what I, I really enjoyed about it. In fact, I was able to play a segment of that interview for my African-American history class. Oh, wow. I mean, and he's talking on a theological podcast about theology, but there is a segment in which what he was talking about with regards to the black experience, more broadly speaking, um, just rings so true and so powerfully that um you know i could i got away with sharing it and um that's cool yeah you know and i think you know this forming you know if we open our eyes we can see it in the in happening with our students 
Mm. I mean, he, he, he provides some examples of, of, of how it works for him. But now that yeah. he's kind of like said, here's the flashlight, go look. You know, I mean, you can, I can see it in my students when they talk about how my African-American students have to code switch. Mm. And they talk and they write in one specific way for class and for work than they do at home with friends and family because the, their natural selves, their natural dialect, the natural way that they live and breathe and move in community mm. is not only not acceptable, but is marked down mm. as insufficient mm. in our classrooms, which is just heartbreaking, you know. Uh, I've I've gotten a, with with the way when I do history papers now I don't do any of the formal like MLA you know Chicago style <laughs> citations I'm like as long as I have an idea where you're coming from okay. and whose idea you took it from just signpost me because you know it's they just don't want to get them all wrapped up in the formality of of mm-hmm. something that is really about like okay let's let's flesh out together this black experience and and what that means. And, Mm. you know, it's hard, man. Like, uh, it's a totally different thing. And every time I get up in front of that classroom, right, there's this odd elephant in the room that is like, Hey, I'm the middle-aged white guy here to teach you about African American (laughs) history. Um, yeah, which I, I feel proud of. I think I'm doing a good job with it, but at the same time, right. It's there. Yeah. And as a, as a nonprofit leader in my other job, right. And when I'm thinking about leadership and all of these different things and, and, um, you know, there's, there's so many instances where it's like, yeah, you know, I have no business trying to, to apply for a leadership position here because I would only be getting it because I can, Mm. not because my life experience is best suited to be the leader in that, whatever it is, you know? Yeah, so that you fit a vision of what leadership is, you know. Yeah, and that's part of that same yeah. inculcated training of what's legit, what's not, mm. you know. Um, yeah. So how do we wrap up this time? Are we ready to wrap up? Yeah, I am. I, I've wondered that too because this is it's a haunting book, right? It's one of those that mm-hmm. is just going to be in me for a while. Yeah, and it should be noted, it's not like general reading, right? If you're somebody no. who goes out and you pick up books, you know, at the bookstore, this is this is like, this is a slog. And that's not any intellectual kind of arrogance I'm throwing at you. I'm just saying, save yourself some time. Yeah. Borrow it from <laughs> one of us first and see if you want to chew on it. Because it's uh, like, I mean, I read for a living and it's it's hard. <laughs> Dude, well, like, that's how that's what I found with, like, his, like, magnum opus is, it's called the, the the Christian Imagination. It's a much thicker book, and I've started that book like four times. Yeah. And while he's, he's he doesn't talk about fancy stuff a lot of the times, like how much he says in a sentence is is just remarkable, and you yeah. just have to take time to digest it, you know. So. Yeah. So. Should we end with like a benediction or something? Is there a benediction here? Is well, that, I feel is like we were pastory? very focused on. What I'd like for this, I, actually, I, I, I just want to say, I think that this is something that that I want us to come back to in future episodes. Yeah. I think that this is a getting at this question of whiteness. And I, I prefer to look at it like that, looking at the question of whiteness rather than race or rather than yeah. blackness, because it's really whiteness that's forcing itself on mm. the rest of the planet. 
Hmm. You know, and I'd, I'd like to look at this again we, because this construct was very much about education, theological education yeah. in particular, and in the formation in those structures. But I think we could we can blow this out and look in a much broader swath of of you know lived existence about mm. this question and how mm. it just permeates everything. It does, and I think that's one of the hard things for people is that they don't have the radar. Mm-hmm. to see it in everyday life. And so many people, I think one of the reasons why so many people push back against racial conversations these days too, is people don't have the mental or emotional bandwidth for it as well. You know, it does, it's devastating as we've said, ding, because there, there is, there's a threat, you know, there is a threat to our status quo in some of this stuff. And it's not that it's trying to um, subvert or undo or hate America or hate white people. It's a liberation we're being invited into, you know, mm. but we all, we all, um, we love our jail cells. You know, we get very comfortable there. We know how to live there. And this foregrounds a lot of issues that we otherwise would love to ignore. And so uh, it, it takes courage to enter the space and to sit there and to, to let voices like Dr. Jennings speak as authoritatively as he naturally does, right? He, he, it reminds me of Jesus' words whenever, I mean, we, we went to see him speak once, right, which was good. And something that always strikes me about him is, uh, you know, people would always marvel at Jesus in his ministry, that he speaks as one with authority, you know, would always be their line. Mm-hmm. And, and Willie has, has that. He, he just naturally speaks yeah. As one with authority, like he doesn't try to have authority. No, yeah, he just it just oozes from him. Yep, uh, because he's such a man of substance. So, uh, Tolalega, right? Take and read. Yep, and uh, give yourself grace. And next week, Ben will uh, unpack liberation theology for all of you reformed megachurch pastors out there looking to shake things up. Add a little spice to your Christmas service. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. This has been Mystery Flight. Thus, Neanderthals have been bouncing around in our our lives. We're still narcissistic, but we feel both better and worse about ourselves for it. So it's been quite, quite educational. Next time I'll be more funny. (laughs) (laughs) Much love. The end. Peace, love, dope. Music in.